Got it. Well, today I have an absolute legend in the sail, uh, sailing arena, uh, a pioneer of the figure eight voyage. And I like to think of you as a friend. Uh, we've only spoken a few times, but uh, I think kindred spirits for sure. Yeah. But welcome, Randall Reeves. I appreciate you coming on. Hey, thank you, Jerome. And you've seen almost as much water as I have, so I don't know about legend. Well, I, you know, it's uh, it's it takes a, a different sort of person to sort of do the things that uh, we've actually gone out there and jumped into. But you know that that adventure thing, it's uh, it's an odd one, but I've been happy with it. Yeah, yeah, I, me too, me too. So, well, welcome back from your latest adventure. I I watched your knockdown video last night and. Uh, it, it was uh, it was like reliving some uh, episodes in my own experiences, seeing the waves and seeing the boat mess below. And, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Finding yourself crawling on the cabin ceiling and uh, yeah, just crazy stuff. So thanks for doing the video. Right. You you what was interesting about the video was it was all kind of in the moment. So you got to not only see the chaos but also kind of live the experience through you're going, Oh my God. Oh my God. Was- <laughs> well, was- and it, it was an odd thing because normally that GoPro would have been locked away somewhere. And for whatever reason, it was in my jacket pocket. And so I uh-huh. figured, Hey, I'll, I'll keep filming. I actually would have filmed more, but the next day, which is this picture behind me, um, I actually thought there was a pretty good chance I might end up in the life raft and I needed to save the battery life. Uh, Cause I was like, that would be some incredible footage, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> At the risk of your life. for uh, Yeah, exactly. Right. Anything for the shot. Um, well, I, I wanted to ask you, cause I don't think you and I have ever really talked about it, but you had a very severe knockdown on your first attempt uh, to do the figure eight. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Uh, well, on one condition that you actually at this some point in this interview, we get to go through your knockdown because I saw the video, but I didn't actually get to talk to you about the. Detail. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. We'll we'll trade war stories. We got some time. <laughs> sure. Uh, so I, I had several um, near disasters on the first attempt. It was uh, what we might call an extended circumnavigating, uh, circumnavigating shakedown cruise because uh, I just got hammered, hammered off Cape Horn and then hammered in the Indian Ocean. So the 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 episode you're referring to was in, I think, February of 2018. I was making way from Cape Horn uh, toward Australia. I was between Cape Good Hope and, uh, sorry, Cape Good Hope, rather. It was between Cape Good Hope and uh, Australia uh, near the Crozet Islands. And I had seen a really interesting weather system coming down from the east coast of South America didn't look like much uh, except that on the gribs it was a closed low wasn't Mm. wasn't big wasn't mean it was just consistent day after day i had this little closed low coming down swinging as you know they can swing from the 20s and 30s down down into the south and then intensify and about three or four days after i saw this on the grip files it intensified in a big way big storm 50 60 70 knots in the eye on the northern of the northern quadrant so it was tough i had been down to about 50 degrees south when i first saw it coming at me i had worked my way back up to about 45 i was just below the crozet islands which are pretty much midway between the two continents africa and australia yeah and 
when it hit, I thought I was in a pretty good position. I had tried to work up into that part of the low that was showing on the grid files to be about 35, 40 steady, not wins. And it just was mean. I mean, I couldn't, I'd never seen as it was coming on. It's kind of like your experience with your Gale. I'd never seen seas like that before. They were super steep mm. and breaking and, and these long breaking trains. And I remember as the, the sun went down, that now we're actually as <laughs> what's gale like we see on the back of your wall there uh, as not as the sun went down but as the gray sky went from gray to black i remember looking at the at the season think i just don't know how we're going to make it through tonight i just nothing had hit us at that point but i i knew that i i didn't know how to negotiate that kind of a sea state and it was a really rough night we actually were knocked down at least twice overnight I was like you, I was below in the cabin. I had set the monitor wind vane. I had the storm sail up. I had a position relative to the seas that I thought was beneficial to the boat. And I remember that feeling of of the boat just kind of going up and then rolling. And I'm in my bunk and I'm just kind of rolling, you know, rolling onto the side of the boat and then rolling <laughs> onto the corner of the ceilings like, oh man. And then you just, as you well know, you hear this wham. And it's like you've been hit by a truck. It's just intense. Well, because because how how much does your boat weigh? Um, Moly is aluminum, full keel, flush deck, sloop rigged. She displaces, depending on the lift in the yard that's lifting me out, between thirty five and thirty eight thousand pounds. So almost twenty tons. So probably almost twice what Sparrow. Uh, you just about well sparrows uh, a big girl when it comes yeah. to to the weight so it's uh i think i'm at about between 13 and 15 tons oh really oh wow yeah oh so she's in the twenty thousand pound range but that yeah so she's heavy right and and so that that that's great in many ways it makes the 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 sea state action much more gentle but it yeah. also but when she gets thrown around, she's thrown around heavily. Anyway, so overnight, can't see anything, as you well know, in a gale. You don't get any benefit from, benefit from the moon. You don't see the stars. You can't actually see the cloud cover. You can't actually see the seas, except maybe sometimes when the breaking sea is phosphorescent. That's the only time you're going to see anything is a, in, a, in, a, in a really heavy gale. And so I, in the middle of the night, I couldn't see what was going wrong. I couldn't see my attitude toward the the sea state, this is the seas that were breaking and, you know, had the wind shifted a lot, should I get driver? And I just couldn't really tell. So I rode it out uh, overnight. And then as the morning came on, I could begin to see the sea state and I decided to jibe around. I had been on, on, on uh, starboard tack, had jibed, sorry, I'd been on starboard port tack, I'd jibed around starboard. And I had just gotten below and had propped myself back into the pilot house and was just beginning to kind of look around and see if what I had just done on deck was successful when I felt the boat just lift, like go straight up in the air, like taking off, lift up, gyrate around, and then launch. And I, I remember this feeling of going from you know, this like compressive state to almost I'm floating in the cabin as the boat is literally thrown down sideways into the trough of the sea. And the landing is is soft, as you well know. Water is soft, and heavy boats land softly. But the next thing I experience is this poof of whiteness. I didn't know exactly immediately what it was. It was white water just filled 
the pilot house. Oh. And I didn't know where from. I had no idea. Then the boat writes and things kind of water's running off into the boat and down into the cabin. And I noticed that I can hear the gale now, whereas when the boat is closed up, it's pretty, pretty quiet below, relatively speaking. And now I, I, I could see through that window across from me, even though in a gale, the ports are usually covered with spray and spume and you can't really see much through them. And then I saw glass everywhere. And only then did I realize that in a knockdown, we had broken a window and filled it with full of water. So that was, that was, you know, that was better than a double espresso and waking me up. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Oh my God. And then you have to go into sort of triage mode of, you know, what do I deal with first and then what's most important. And I didn't know what to do. I'm the fourth owner of this boat. It's an expedition yacht. It has been in harm's way its entire 30-year life. It's done several roundings of Cape Horn. It's been through the Northwest Passage twice before I bought it. And no one had ever covered up those windows. No one had storm shutters. I had lots of things on my departure to-do list, and I let storm shutters fall off the list. I had no way that I could think of of plugging the hole. So I have this, you know, like the windows on, on my boat are about two feet by a foot. They're, they're fairly large in the pilot house. And it was really challenging. Uh, I, I decided the first thing I needed to do was simply sit down and pump water. I remember that picture from your video of you. Yeah. So I sat down and I, I've come up with this maxim. If you don't know what to do, pump out water. <laughs> <laughs> Pumping the bilge and finally realized after some minutes of cogitation that I had bunk boards in the V-berth that I could with some artful uh, work a sandwich over the hole and through bolt and uh, that worked out pretty well and by that time the gale was beginning to tail off i put out the drogue to steady the boat because i just i just had been unable to figure out how to make the boat safe under sail so i threw the drogue out and that really that really steadied things up pretty pretty dramatically and then just like you then you've got this big mess yeah like, you know i've got chaos below and it took days days of cleanup and and there are parts of the boat that are still wet with salt water even now years yeah later. right well I, you find i kept finding eggshells uh, yeah, in all that. these hidden little places for for the rest of the voyage actually uh i i lost i had a little hook on starboard side where i hung the ignition key gone gone yeah never, right <laughs> never, in fact one of the big problems with the rest of the that leg so i, I decided at that point this was my second crack up actually on that attempt i decided at that point to put into hobart for repairs and that put me really really far behind so one of the challenges getting into into hobart was how do i hotwire the engine because it seems really simple but i just couldn't get the starter uh, switch to hotwire so it took a while to figure it out oh wow wow gee so that that's pretty incredible i mean you were you were really pushing it then in the Indian ocean. I mean, when I went across, I think I rode 40 South and even went North of that a little bit for the vast majority of it. And I, I did have to dodge, um, cyclone Irving at one point and I cut right in front of it, which I know you're not supposed to do, but, uh, I didn't really have too many options, but you were way down there in the fifties in the Indian ocean. Well, yes <laughs> wow i mean 
Morticia would be proud. Really, I didn't <laughs> intend to be that far south. I and prior to the Gale, part of what the problem was was I had I had let myself get too far south. So I had set myself up to get what I got. Um, I had had really light northeasterlies for days prior to this gale. And so I had just been following them south, just trying to make a little bit of easting. Yeah. The wind, the wind was both light and not in my favor. So that was what what had driven me south. And then when I saw this gale coming down from South America, I, I whipped it around and headed back up to the gotcha. north. Now, what I've in hindsight, I've realized several things about that gale. Um, one was that even though I was not within sight of land, I was on a shelf. The Crozet Islands are very small and, and separated by a lot of water. But ah. there's a vast shelf that comes up from, you know, infinity, like 10, 15, 18,000 feet deep, comes up to about three or 4,000 feet deep. So it's not that the wave action that I was in was driven by that bottom, but that bottom was shallow. And there had been a, a tail of the Augelhouse current coming south that was riding up over that shelf and creating an unusual current relative to that gale. And that's what I think drove the, the really strange and difficult to maneuver sea state. Well, uh, the, and and that, sorry to interrupt, but that, yeah, I mean, that was essentially the, the exact situation yeah. that I found myself on. You know, yeah. I had thought that I was clear. I mean, I was clear of the main flow of the Gulf Stream, but there were swirling eddies just to the south of me and you know it, it is so remarkable to see what wind against a current does to the ocean it's crazy yeah it it changes the sea state in a way that feels way out of proportion to the mm -hmm. amount of wind uh, i mean even in my bay san francisco bay uh, we have a little little uh, channel called raccoon strait about you know half a mile wide and maybe three miles long and the, the tide races through that and then hits a little lump about two thirds of the way and, and throws the water straight up in the air. And then you get wind coming into Golden Gate Lit Bridge driving across that. And suddenly you go from flat water, you know, half a mile downwind of it to you're suddenly looking at, at like four foot seas, boom, right <laughs> immediately. It's really incredible uh, what, what even a, a moderate amount of wind will do to the sea state. Then if you say to yourself, well, I'm not in a moderate amount of wind, I mean, 40, 45, 50. <laughs> yeah. It really, it really changes the dynamic tremendously. And I didn't, I just didn't grok that at the time because the Crozet Islands are 600, 1,000 miles south of and and way east of Cape Good Hope. I I just didn't even consider the Augelhouse as being anything to think about, but it's such a huge current system that it throws off, to your point, it throws off these eddies that uh, can confuse the sea state uh, further south. Well, and it, it's really interesting, too, that you say, you know, when when all this stuff happens, the first thing is, you know, there's just like, well, what do I do? Uh, yeah. Because it is. It's like this foreign thing. You know, you're so used to the boat being a certain way. And no matter what the weather, you're at least sailing and you're doing your thing. But then all of a sudden, everything changes. And I felt that 100% when I went up on deck. Uh, you know, first I had to unbury myself because yeah. I, I'm, I made plenty of mistakes. Uh, I was not prepared for, for basically having the boat turn almost completely upside down. Yeah. And sure. so I get buried completely by everything from cushions to tables, to books, to food, everything. And 
I kind of dig myself out of that. And I walk along the side as Sparrow is coming back up and I get up there. And when I notice that the arch and the solar panels and everything is gone, um, you know, then I was like, holy cow, this is like crazy real deal. What am I going to do? And, you know, the first thing before even going down to pump, uh, I don't know, my brain sort of just snapped into like, okay, well, let's take a closer look. And I went out and looked and there, lo and behold, there's all the gallows, the stainless steel piping, the solar panels, all dragging right next to the rudder and really? right next to the wind vane rudder, more importantly. Yeah. And so that was one where I'll, all of a sudden, I don't know, just this sort of feeling like, okay, we need to make some choices here. And I, I did try to, to pull some of it back on board, but we're already surfing waves again. Like we're moving. And I didn't really think like, oh, okay, well let's go and try and go hove two or anything like that. I just made the decision after about 20 seconds, like I got to cut all that stuff free to make sure that the wind vane doesn't get damaged. You know, it's lost anyway. So let's just move on. And, you know, um, then it was straight into the bilge and down below. And like you said, I mean, I had that camera, so I figured I'd, take a few clips and a few shots, a little, little commentary here and there. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was, I have a question. Yeah. Where did you have the eggs that they flew across the, the cabin? The, the, the hatch to my refrigerator, which cool. is a bear to open. I mean, literally it's always really hard to open. And I had, I had put um, tape and stuff like that on it because it was getting a little wild, but I mean, in all the stuff I've ever done, it's never, ever come completely open that actually flew up and it dented the ceiling so everything emptied and i had only been out for i think seven days so it was full of food i had six dozen eggs in there <laughs> oh man uh, but yeah it, it, it was it was you know make sure the boat is sailing yeah. do a quick check on that and then it was straight into trying to bilge all the water out i was lucky you know i the most of the water that came in, it came in through the hatchboards in the companion way. But other than that, it was mostly, it came out of the sink. It came out of the head, uh, which is pretty gross, but you know, it's just, it's what happens when you go upside down. And, um, you know, I wanted to clear that bilge, uh, so I could see if anything else was coming in from somewhere. Cause it was the, the impact that we had was really, uh, very similar to yours where it's the impact into the trough of the wave. Cause we got essentially picked right up into the air and then fell over the falls and these waves were breaking. So, so kind of crazy, which I, I didn't know about at the time. I only saw it the next day, but I mean, you know, we're, we're talking probably the boat kind of flew through the air or on riding the breaking part of the wave for, I don't know, 30, 40 feet, who knows before it actually did the impact. And, and that was the side of the boat where all the damage was done. The spray skirts and the dodger and everything were all torn up on the lower side, not the side that the wave was coming from. Oh, right. Yeah. I know a guy named Michael Johnson who sailed a West sail named Gitana, I believe. Uh, and this was back in the 70s and 80s around the world and in, in you know, into harm's way. Yeah. Uh, beautiful West sail. And he had a similar situation where he's riding the tail end of the gale, forget where, he's in the south somewhere, tail end of the gale, winds are like 1825, you know, so he's at the very end of it. So the seas are still large, but the wind has backed off. 
and he's down below thinking he's he's gotten through it and he's getting a little shut eye and the boat picked up thrown down and even as strong as that hull is and that west sail hull is just massively strong uh the the fall onto the the side of the boat compressed the hull just like woof like that and all of the mm-hmm. internal furnishings fell off like well, it didn't fall but i mean like we're we're, we're broken free from their attachment to the inside of the hull wow that's a lot of force it's it's hard to relay to people how much something that weighs eight pounds per gallons weighs when it's the size of a five-story building <laughs> in a city block i mean it's just enormous pressure and weight you know water is really unlike air it's not compressible so when it hits you it's that full force yeah hitting and the, the pressures are just immense so you know, and I saw those videos of, of the damage done because you're below and it feels kind of like, except for stuff flying around, it feels kind of soft, right? It's not like, at least for me on, on Mo, it wasn't a wham. It was just yeah. like falling a whoosh on your side. And it, But the, the pressure, we just, we just don't, we're not from inside of the hole, we're not feeling the pressure that the boat is feeling. And that's, it's amazing the damage you can get from just one, one knockdown, even, even in a super tough boat like a West Cell. Yeah, well, and 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 those boats or those waves, you know, when they do get up to that size, where the breaking section of the wave is as big, uh, if not a little bit bigger than the boat, uh, it, it is. It's it's like it's able to. It's powerful enough to just actually grab the boat and move it. It's which is very different because from you know just a breaking wave that impacts the side of the hull, um, and just that's when it's the loud sounds like a bus hitting but it, you know and it might give you a shove but it's not it's not in the category of the waves that you know are actually capable of making your boat turn into a toy boat and just sort of throw it <laughs> so how much wind did you have when you during that gale and and when you were knocked down kind of what was the wind state uh, at the time, so the winds kicked in at about four in the morning and just built steadily throughout the day. I would say it was steady 30 to 35 knots of wind. Uh, okay. And then we'd get these big squalls that rolled in that really amped it up quite a bit. Pretty exciting. But it was all sort of short lived. And I was in a um, the current was flowing with the wind for the entire day. And I think in some ways that may have uh, given me a false sense of security because as soon as I sort of ventured away from that current, then all of a sudden, you know, the seas started to heap up more. Uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, I would say the, the winds never probably broke 40 knots. I don't think so. It was, it wasn't, you know, this catastrophic gale by any means. And the next day when I was able to see the really big sets of waves, and this was when I had wandered right into a counter current. And, and this was the time where I was most concerned. It only lasted about three hours, but the winds were probably only blowing 25 to 30 at that point where I was seeing the just monsters rolling in. And that was, uh, it it was strange, but it it reminded me of some of the stuff that Bernard Montissier used to talk about where he said, sometimes he would see the biggest waves after the gale had blown through. You just get these random ones that, pile on top of each other or or whatever so i don't it was was crazy that's a key i think that's a key remark and that was one of my so the first learning was current current wind over current big problem 
The second learning was speed is safety. So yeah, exactly yeah. referencing that Bernard Mortessier learning, what we don't realize, because we experience wind as traveling across, you know, horizontal to, to us on a plane, wind is blowing at us. And, and in fact, it's actually coming down. It's blowing down to the ocean top from the center of the low pressure system. So it's actually when it's at its highest, it's holding the seas down because of the horizontal force and because the pressure is coming down. So it's holding, even though at the height of the gale, it didn't look like it. It's actually holding the seas down during the height of the highest winds. And as the winds begin to tail off, the pressure on the wave train releases. And so the waves spring up. And this, so my biggest error during this cycle and in this final knockdown was that the wind had been 40, 45, maybe gusting 50. So not the strongest wind we had experienced at all. And nothing outside of what I would consider to be Mo's range of sailing. She should be able to sail in that kind of a wind state and the seas that are normally knocked up by that kind of wind. So we're, we're in the tail end of it. The wind has backed off a bit. But I don't make more sail. I leave the storm jib up. Storm jib is tiny. Mm-hmm. And we're only making four and a half, five and a half, you know, maybe surfing a little bit to maybe six and seven on occasion, but not usually. So the boat is going slowly in an increasingly bad sea state because the wind is tailing off and the seas are getting higher. And they may not be breaking quite as often. I don't know. It wasn't like I was counting them, but the seas are bigger and they're steeper in that last third of the gale until they just kind of work themselves out. So what I realized, and only months later, as I was doing reading and kind of thinking through it was, I wasn't allowing Mo enough steerage. She wasn't going fast enough to correct fast enough to the sea state that was that was being thrown at her. So instead of making seven and eight and maybe nine on occasion, she's making four and five and six knots. And with the monitor, lovely device, I, I adore it, but its range its tiller or wheel range is pretty narrow. You don't get the full run from side to side with the monitor. You only get maybe half of the run from side to side. So with the slowness and the inability of the boat to feel that water paddle to react quickly on on the monitor, I wasn't allowing Mo to steer as aggressively as I would have been if she had been sailing faster. She would have corrected more quickly if she were going faster. So that was my biggest tactical change from um, the first figure eight to the second figure eight. I swore when I departed on the second figure eight, I would never fly the storm jib. Leave it in the bag. And instead, I just would roll up the number two. So I've got two jibs, a Genoa out front. It's a Solent rig on on Mo. So two head sails right on the bow. Both go right up to the head of the mast. The inner one is the working head cell, number two. I said, I'll keep everything on the number two. And even when I rolled it up to what looked like just a handkerchief, still it was probably two or three times larger than the storm jib. So it was, it was a lot more sail, even in, in, in the really, really bad conditions. And the goal then was as the wind tails off, roll out a little more jib, roll out a little more jib and keep the speed up. Try to keep, you know, six, seven, eight. That's the goal. Keep the boat going six, seven, eight. My goal. And I had problems on the second go round for sure. You know, we had big weather, but I never, I think I was knocked down maybe once. Um, and I didn't have nearly the kinds of issues that I had on the first try. So I really, I think I was trying to follow the Motessier, uh Dumas 
sale plan of not heaving two ever. It's just kind of like, boom, oh, plus, yeah, plus, yeah. Plus, plus, plus. And I, I, I think that's a great strategy. And the flaw in my approach was on the first time around, I wasn't flying enough sail. I wasn't keeping the boat going fast enough. Speed is safety for a heavy displacement monitor, you know, wind vane steered boat. Right, right. Well, and and I had run into the same issue uh, deep in the Pacific, hmm. middle of March, um, making the, the downturn towards Cape Horn. And I got into a pretty terrific gale and we were doing all right, but the winds crept up into the 50s and I actually was running just under storm jib alone sheeted amidships no mainsail and the waves after oh. the night they they built up pretty big and we um how oh, what was it i can't remember if i was trying to put up more mainsail and i just couldn't do it in that wind because we were starting to slow down as you said down to about three and a half or four knots sometimes and these big breakers are coming right up right up to the stern and and normally Sparrow can just skitter away from it uh, or at least be pushed away from it because Sparrow tracks really well. Uh, mm -hmm. But I got knocked down that night and it was one of those impact like stuff flew across the uh, from the nav station to the galley. Like, you know, if it was if they were sharp objects, they'd like pointing into something and stick there kind of thing. And and I remember that was my wake up call. And I went up that night and then, you know, I think it took an hour, but I was able to inch up the third reef in the mainsail while still just going dead downwind. And um, and after that, we didn't have any problems. Yeah, yeah, very good. So are you saying then that in the gale, where were you relative to Bermuda? You were close to Bermuda, I believe. Uh, I was about 300 miles northeast of Bermuda okay. when the knockdown happened. And I had been running, you know, I I was making some serious miles it would have been a record setting day i think uh, for sparrow until until all all hell broke loose yeah so where uh so that's where you were okay that's interesting i i had another gale uh as i was approaching halifax uh northeaster came down mm -hmm. and i would, and i made a, a an interesting error in 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 judging where i was relative to the gulf stream i thought i was way east of it and i was actually more or less in it i hadn't brought with me any online tools to help me understand where the where the current actually was you know that week and i had i had been just like this was the horror most horrible leg of the second trip was getting from cape horn up to halifax so it was just light wind the trade winds were not very strong um the just working through the horse latitudes was murder and I had finally saw this gale come down out of the northeast. Wow, great. I'm gonna I'm gonna take the southerlies and make some really excellent northerly, and then just throw out the drogue for the northerly part of the gale as it rolls yeah, through. Yeah. Excellent strategy with one problem. I was in the Gulf Stream. So <laughs> Gulf Stream going north, and we had the wind coming out of the out of the north. And I was on drogue, and the seas were just like incredible. I mean, they weren't huge like you get in the south, but they were literally vertical. And so we're like up and down and and the <laughs> One of the biggest problems was that there was a lot of current against the wind. And so what it would do is is collapse the drogue line, take a lot of the tension off the drogue line. And and at one point during the gale, the drogue bridle got wrapped around the water paddle of the wind vane. Oh, okay. Yep. Ripped it right off. 
Right, right. I I have used that as uh, an answer to so many people that that talk to me about, you know, I should be using a drogue and this and that. And I I do see the relevance of having them. They're great safety equipment, all that sort of stuff. But because I have this very, I don't want to call Mongo delicate, but you you put that much tension and wrap it around that little rudder and it'll pull it right off. And yeah, yeah, I mean, that that's always scared me into you know what? I'm just going to keep riding this thing out and we're just going to go for it. Yeah. I, I, I do like the drug. I use the Jordan series drug and I've used it probably four times now over those, the course of those two uh, voyages. That was the first time I had a problem, but that was a new drug and it, and the bridle and actually most of the drug line was, was Dyneema, mm-hmm. which if it doesn't float, it certainly doesn't sink. So it's right there on the top of the top of the water. As opposed to that, like one inch bridle out of nylon that the boat had, right, right, fire, which heavy and sinks and gets out of the way. So I suspect that if I had used a nylon bridle or, or some kind of non-dyneema line, some kind of sinking line, that I wouldn't have had that problem. Yeah, well, it would. I mean, it's going to get thrown all over the place, especially you add in breaking waves and then a little bit of slack to it. And that's, that's what I worry about with those, but, but Hey, uh, believe it or not, we're almost out of time here. The zoom meeting thing's going to cut us off, but uh, I just wanted to uh, give you a chance. um, If you wanted to sort of shout out anything about what you're doing, or if you got some future plans or I'll I'll definitely put a link to the book and everything, because I I do want to say about the book, one of my goals when I wrote mine, was to write something that that reads very differently than your normal round the world uh, sailing tale, uh, but you've taken it to a really different level because you've really displayed your figure eight voyage not only with words but also with great photography, and it really is amazing. Thank you. The book is actually available on Amazon now, and I called it very uniquely <laughs> the figure eight voyage. <laughs> So search Amazon. Uh, you can buy it there. It's a hundred pages to your point. It's mostly photos, uh, print on demand now. Uh, so thanks. I, I do have another book that I'm working on, uh, a narrative, uh, closer in style to what you did, but as I'm sure, you know, taking logs and turning them into uh, a book is, uh, is a bit more of a challenge. And so that's been a slow, slow go. Um, as for m- next trips, I think I'm headed back to the Arctic. It won't be this coming summer. I have family issues here in California, but, uh, I'd like to overwinter at some point in the Arctic. I heard about that. I heard a rumor and I'll tell you, I, if we're, you know, if we get a chance to do another one of these, uh, maybe we can just do another quick one at some point. Yeah, sure. I, I would love to pick your brains about, and, and what Randall means by this is you're talking about going and getting locked in the ice for the winter, right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> that's a whole next level right there wow yeah, so thank you you appreciate that most people go why would you want to do that and what's so hard about it well what's hard about it is you're the only person there there yeah. are two, two coast guard cutters for the entire canadian arctic and they go home for the winter and so unless you're close to a village you're absolutely on your own and it's a 10-month winter by the way so yeah <laughs> so holy it's different it, it's going to require a different way of thinking it's not a sailor's way of thinking so anyway i've I've really still in the framing out stage of that project wow well hopefully we'll be able to peel into that randall thank you so much for coming on if i ever make it to the west coast you and i'll sit down for a long form podcast (laughs) and really trade some war stories sounds good pleasure jerome uh good luck with you and your future projects all right thank you thanks man see you